Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to oh, you now. Come down to Wanfield and we'll see them all. What are you doing down here, you shawnee man? <laughs> Everyone talks about Mondays in Ireland. Everything is a slog on a Monday. Ah, Mondays. Fucking hell. Those were the words of Damien Duff last week about attitudes in the League of Ireland towards Monday Night Football. But he could just as easily have been talking about how a lot of people in society feel about this particular day. Thankfully, it's a bank holiday today, so hopefully a lot of you are getting a break from the usual grind and are enjoying this episode of the Second Captain's Football Pod in as relaxed a frame of mind as possible. Hey, Ken. Oh, and how are you? Shamrock Rovers have had a... Well, they've had very few problems playing football on any night of the week in recent years. They already had their... Apart from Thursday was, night. Thursday nights, yes. Yeah, was Europe has been a bit, a bit more of a... Forget Thursdays. Most other nights of the week, certainly domestically, they uh, already had their third league title in a row wrapped up before beating second place Derry City in Tala last night on an emotional evening. Stephen Bradley has spoken before about his son Josh, who has leukaemia. Josh was the star of the show yesterday, front and centre, lifting the trophy. Bradley said afterwards it was a special night, three in a row with everything that's gone on personally. I spoke to the players and asked them, could they give us this, this night for Josh? There have been some difficult nights, so could they give us this one? Something that he has been looking forward to and takes his mind off the treatment. So some nice stuff there. We're going to chat to the 42.e's David Snade about Rovers' hat-trick of titles on the show today. Tomorrow, for World Service members only, we look ahead to Ireland against South Africa and the rugby. We'll have Champions League covered throughout the week and loads more for only fi- a fiver a month plus fat on secondcaptains.com. Now, Ken, please report on some sport. Well, and it's obviously uh, a lot of people, I think, have already commented on the fact that it's uh, been a very disappointing day for Brazil's footballers. As, um, Did they lose a match? Was there a friendly international I didn't know? About? Some of them lost matches and some of them won matches. But um, uh, for most of them, they were looking at the uh, election results, from the overnight election results ah. from Brazil with some despondency as their boy, 
Jair Bolsonaro became the first uh, Brazilian president to not win re-election uh, when he uh, right. was standing for it, uh, losing the the runoff to Lula. So um, a shattering blow, <laughs> a shattering blow to many of these football players who uh, I suppose they can maybe go out to Qatar and bring back one more for the Gipper. Uh, Tim Vickery really was scratching around trying to find footballers who weren't supporting Bolsonaro or, or who who were who were going the other way I should say hmm. in the election it was you know relatives of Socrates and this sort of stuff but largely uh, the the ones who were front and center the ones who were speaking in any way on either side of the current batch most of them seem to be Bolsonaro heads yeah I mean there's there's always the uh, fact that maybe you're less willing to state your support for the opposition candidate while Bolsonaro is still in power and maybe now you're gonna oh well I was with Lula all along you know you're gonna see a bit of that coming out uh, I mean I guess when you look at the map um, the electoral map I mean you can see that the Bolsonaro support is concentrated in the south of the country um, which is where the biggest cities are as well, I mean, Sao Paulo and, and Rio and south of there, but also a huge chunk in the in the Amazon, which is, I guess, more lightly populated, but like so so pro Bolsonaro. This is the, uh, I mean, you got to remember that's the people in the Amazon uh, who are voting, not all the other species. So they <laughs> Sorry, are. I should laugh. This being one of, one of the more important things going on in the world now. Yeah, trees don't vote, Owen. Uh, no, but the people who live vote. in the Amazon uh, would would like to see less of them. As far as they're concerned, they've got more trees that you can shake a stick at, and uh, it's it's high time we cut down some of these trees. Uh, and got they it. literally can't see the wood from the trees at the moment. These voters. Yeah, whereas whereas the uh, the rest of the or the Lula support is is more in the northern half of the country and around the northeast. Um, so you could, I suppose, look at where the players ca- came from and make crude assumptions about them based on that. But you know, let's not do that. It's actually a pointless exercise. Uh, but that was obviously a big thing that was happening. What else is happening? Um, oh yeah, well, I mean, it, it was it was quite an interesting weekend of football. Actually, we'll start at the very top on. Uh, Arsenal Football Club, uh, who had, uh, who who were, were up against the team Nottingham Forest high on their uh, victory last week uh, against Liverpool, and just absolutely wiped the floor with them. Um, and the, the, I mean, I was, I would say the key is to score an, an, uh, a relatively early goal as Arsenal did with Martinelli, but they actually had some sort of nervous spells after that, when uh, particularly when Saka. You know, Saka got injured and had to go off. And that's obviously a concern, although Arteta, Arteta says he should be, thinks he's going to be okay for the World Cup. Um, but it was in the second half then that they, that they just crushed them. You know, uh, Reese Nelson, obviously Thomas Partey scoring his goal. He's very good at that shot, that particular shot. Just sort of um, almost side-footing the ball into the top corner from uh, anywhere from 20 to 40 yards from goal. Um uh, and a couple of assists for Gabriel Jesus, who hasn't scored now in seven matches. But uh, it's not about the goals. You know, it's about what he gives the team. So, um, yeah, I mean, it can't really be going any better for Arsenal. No, the real deal. I mean, the, you look at them now and you're like, well, these are, you know, who is better? Who's who's better in the Premier League at, it's, at this moment in his position than Martin Odegaard? Kevin De Bruyne, maybe? Um you know who is better? Erling, than, Erling Haaland. Well, Odegaard isn't isn't a striker. You know, I mean. Haaland. Oh, sorry, I thought you meant in his position, as in 
yeah, well, sorry, who plays better in the position they play in, which is would just be another way of saying who's the best player. Is, so, is there a better I, I now, yeah, now I, I mean, mean yeah, Holland, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think most people would probably agree Holland is you know, the best individual player. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Martin Martinelli, like who has been better than Martinelli um, as a wide forward in the league? I don't, I can't, I can't think of anyone who's who's been on that level. Um, you know, then you look at like Shaka. I mean, Shaka has been having an absolutely outstanding season, uh, which I certainly can't claim any credit for having seen that one coming. <laughs> you know, just because I've been ever since Shaka has been at Arsenal, I've always thought, no, this guy just, this guy just isn't really. He's not. He's not at the level. Well, I mean, a lot of Arsenal fans thought the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe. Um, you know, given time, uh, given time, he's, he's certainly exceeded the expectations, the modest expectations I put him. Saliba, obviously, is, is doing uh, brilliantly. You know, I don't see players at Man City, uh, you know, defenders at Man City who have been better than him. You know, Ben White's having a great season. You know, so many players are playing so well. Um, and, the, you know, the, the first half of this uh, season has is almost perfect i mean they're, they're they're close to signing off on, on a virtually perfect first half of the season and then obviously the big question is going to be w- whether they're going to be able to resume in the same sort of rhythm that they have established uh which has been so effective after the uh after the world cup and obviously the pressure of well we we actually are going for this against man city now you know as opposed to we're just doing our thing you know we're just trying to focus on the next game and win our games you know the the pressure of actually competing directly with city is going to bring a new psychological element but you know at the moment um it's looking really uh, really positive um and you can't really do much better than five nil uh obviously man united playing then yesterday as well and getting another win rashford with this hundredth goal and that oh, De Gea doing his thing well De Gea, you know i mean the you, you know, United definitely uh, will have felt pretty pleased to have won this game at the end because some of the saves the Hay made in the last 15 minutes were sensational. I mean, the one from the header, I can't remember who was it. I can't remember which West Ham player actually had the header. It was going right in the corner. Yeah. You know, there was a shot by, there was a shot by Declan Rice where he maybe needed to take a leaf out of Partey's book and... Um, just have that one either slightly higher or slightly more in the corner because when you're shooting from that far out, you are giving De Gea, even though he struck the ball really well, you're giving De Gea enough. It's a little bit telegraphed. He can read what you're going to do and he read it very well, but it was ultimately a comfortable save. The one where he dived to his right to put a header around post was a phenomenal save. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's funny the, the way that he does this. Like He goes through these kind of unbeatable quarter hours no, more so than any goalkeeper I can I can remember. Just that that sort of like I'm just going to save whatever's coming at me, um, which uh, it, I, and and you saw his celebrations at the end. I mean, obviously because it was a big one for the team, but it's also kind of a big one for him because his contract is being discussed at the moment. Or Ten Hag says we're going to think about what we're going to do with his contract uh, over the World Cup through the World Cup. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this? Because the Hay is obviously one of the best paid players in the world. Um, you know, uh, and the question is whether uh, he still deserves to be um, at a team like Man United, who uh, you know, whatever whatever this sort of transitional phase that they're going through at the moment is is under Eric Ten Hag going to be um, a possession team that uh, where the goalkeeper is expected to be, you know, a footballer. 
Mm. And that's the big question with De Gea. I mean, I've kind of said already that I think he's not the right goalkeeper if that's what you're trying to do. Uh, but obviously, he's he has got some outstanding attributes, which he showed yesterday. So um, it's a dilemma. Uh, I think they probably, it might be best for them to, rather than sign De Gea, I mean, they still have another option, I think, on his, an option for an extra year in his current deal. But, you know, there's a reason why De Gea is probably not going to be going to the World Cup with Spain. Uh, partly it has to do with just some bad games that he's had for Spain. Um you know, sometimes a goalkeeper can play a couple of bad games for the national team and everyone decides, oh, this guy's soft. You know, especially if, like, the hey, you play in a different country and, you know, how many people are going to be watching his unbeatable quarter hour against West Ham in Spain? Um, but mainly it has to do with the, with them thinking that he can't play football, you know. In, Does in that, the that necessary, though? I know we, we say Ten Hag needs to be able to have a goalkeeper who can do that. But Ten Hag has already shown himself to be willing to compromise, at least in the short term. On yeah, but this isn't, a short term. Principles. this isn't a short-term decision, though. I know, but who knows? Maybe his eyes are, are open to a new way of doing things. No, it could be. Maybe he sees <laughs> well, well, if so, maybe. <laughs> you, know, you know, everybody would like a goalkeeper that just sort of stops everything, um, <laughs> which, which the hail on his good days can be. I mean, he does, I think he has a record for saves in a game. Didn't he do that against Arsenal? in that crazy game where Man United won 3-1 at the Emirates, uh, despite being absolutely hammered. Um, you know, he is, uh, he, he does have that. Like, you know, it's, it's, it is exceptional, but it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a balance. And I think, I think for, you know, in terms of the overall balance, he is the wrong goalkeeper for, them, for you know, for a Ten Hag team. But we'll wait and see. They're not deciding anything until after the World Cup. So what else is going on? Newcastle, of course, are uh, rolling, 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 rolling towards the top four um maybe they really are going to go for it this season which i didn't think they'd done enough to 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 achieve but obviously certain things of you know chelsea have have been a little bit shaky obviously liverpool who we'll get to um have totally collapsed and it's opening up a little bit for them um you know obviously four nil villa had that had that great win aaron danks though uh didn't go quite so well this time out reverse oh. Poor old Aaron Danks. His, he gets his he gets his amazing moment through the, his win three 0 If he could have walked away, then if Unai Emery's work permit, if all that paper could have been done just a little bit faster, Emery's in the dugout at the weekend, and Danks sails off. Instead, he has to watch a four 0 win and be the manager during a concussion controversy. Well, I mean, come Emmy on, Martinez, that was crazy though. That was really that was insane that they let him go back on there. Mm. You know, like what what like how is that still happening? With the with the usual provisos that you know they they would have gone through the protocols and that's what I know, but it just it does make you look what, a bit it does make you look a bit foolish when your goalkeeper like rolls over on his back and looks like he's about to puke like a few minutes after you've sent him back on. You know what I mean? It's 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 kind of like yeah, sorry, I know I'm not privy to exactly what passed yeah. between Martinez and the doctors. It's just that what I see from from <laughs> from looking on, just it it tells a certain story. You know, yeah. it just it, it the story is there. We can all see what happened. Uh, the if in doubt, the if in doubt, sit it out thing, which is what the FA say. You know, that's supposed to govern all protocols, whatever about all the ins and outs of the specific things that are supposed to happen. There's also a doctor, by the way, in the tunnel who's who's looking at the footage as well. So <sighs> that should alleviate a bit of the pressure on the the medics who are on the pitch. Between all of them, you would think in a situation like that that the 
that there that there did seem to be some doubt. Certainly, that's the way it appeared looking on TV, and that maybe Martinez should sit it out. But it didn't happen that way. It is also it also raised the yeah, the temporary sub thing isn't actually a perfect solution in rugby or other sports, but it's better. At least it gives a certain amount of time and gets the doctors away from the pitch and allows them to do their thing and wherever else in the stadium so you know whether even it's a it could be a little bit of a call to action to get that one through because they do have the permanent sub thing which you don't actually lose a substitute you you can make you can make that sub and you're not being punished except you're losing your first choice goalkeeper yeah so but still in a situation like that it wasn't enough for them to pull him out so it's pretty worrying to be fair yeah no i mean it was a really solid knee to the head that he took from throwing Ming. so you know not great i mean as for newcastle uh really remarkable uh you know it's it's like as though someone made a wish on a monkey's paw for for keegan's newcastle to return and now now this is what we've got um keegan's newcastle conceded a lot more goals again yeah 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 well this is keegan's newcastle with a solid defense this is a new mean uh keegan's newcastle rapping at the door rapping at the door of the top four and uh you know and and i'm sure people uh, newcastle fans indeed have pointed out that the best players um when I mean, you look at them, who, who are the outstanding players? I mean, you, you, you're talking about Shaolinton. Almiron. Uh, Almiron, yeah. of course. Uh, he's, he's done a, this ability swap with Son this season. He's just mm. basically, they've each turned into the other for some, somehow. And Almiron is uh, is just banging them in. Um, Calm Wilson. These are all uh, Mike Ashley era purchases, you know? Mm-hmm. Which raises the question, maybe Eddie Howe, who's done such a magnificent job, could be doing all this without Saudi Arabia's massive investment. Just with sheer coaching ability, you know, no dickheads policy, human qualities, organization, you know, all that stuff. Maybe he could just be doing that and we could be seeing this from Newcastle without also being one of the biggest spending clubs in the world thanks to Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Oh, what a story that would be, eh? But I guess we'll never know. Um, because uh, uh, I guess it is sort of inseparable. Eddie Howe is doing a really good job, though. You have to say, from where he took the club to how took over the club to how quickly they've gotten up into the Champions League spots, albeit with the money at his disposal, nobody thought this was going to happen so quickly. For example, we've got an email in here from... We do get these, Ken, from Newcastle fans, Cormac Kennedy, who says Ken's refusal to even remotely acknowledge that Eddie Howe is doing a very good job is triggering. I'm aware that part of the reason for this is my own internal conflict between loving watching this team and the moral concerns that I have. However, I don't see how it can be ignored how much improved Newcastle are in such a short period of time. The transformation of Joe Linton from comical £35 million striker to possibly the mid- best midfield destroyer in the league is jarring to witness. Fabian Schaar was being forced out of the club on a free transfer until Howe came in and now he's performing at a Champions League level. Sean Longstaff is no longer a Championship level player. And what do I even need to say about Miguel Almiron at this point? The fact is that every single player that was at the club prior to Howe's arrival that's still there has been improved by him. Combine that with the drastic change in style of play in under a year to go from the team with the deepest defence in the league and lowest turnovers per 90 minutes to a team playing much higher up the pitch and turning the ball over more than anyone else in the league and so on. Anyhow, yeah. doing a great job. Again. Yeah, no, I mean, the, obviously they, they have improved a lot. But again, I, I think that the, the sort of infusion of enormous amount of money uh, and quality players, particularly like Bruno Guimaraes, is, um, is a big part of that story. Should have them, that all of that I think should have them in the top 10 this season, which is where I saw 
Newcastle going. You know, they could have top 10, maybe... Why maybe top, I mean, have top a go 10 to, is top 10 is not very ambitious. I mean top maybe maybe six have a go seven, at the top I 6. Have, I would have said was was a I I didn't I didn't see uh Joe Linton being the midfield linchpin of a team going for the Champions League. And I think some of that is I I don't know it's I it, it is obviously I think maybe it's hard in your head to separate impossible in your head maybe to separate. It's just it's just a shame. He's coaching up those players that were already that, already that, there that, from, that, that, from, you know, from from the circumstances of the ownership and so on. But it is it is a shame. Dude, on, a, on a purity, if you can talk about it in a purity football sense, he is doing a very good job. He's yeah. I mean, he's he's doing okay. You know, he's won six out of thirteen matches uh, after being one of the top spending clubs in the world. So you know, like let's keep our hair on. You know, in terms of. Uh, of handing out the, the manager of the year awards just yet. But I do I do feel as though um yeah, it it is it's sad, isn't it, that all the credit's gonna go to Saudi Arabia in the end. But um I suppose that's the way it goes when you when you are Saudi Arabia's club. Of course there was the you know, they're not the only team that spent plenty of money. Obviously Chelsea did that and had a total disaster at Brighton, the first defeat for Graham Potter. They were one 0 down after five minutes. And that was actually a relief because uh, Brighton had already nearly scored twice by the time uh by the time they, they went one 0 up, ended up losing four one. Uh, and you know the the notable thing about the game really was the uh, <laughs> the way the Graham Potter's relationship with the Brighton fans is, is so bad. What is the story with that? He's getting booed and everything. I, <laughs> well, just, I suppose it happens. Just this sort of peevish uh, Graham Potter afterwards going, you know. I've done. I did a good job here, as you could see today from their team. <laughs> you know, I left them. In, I left them in a pretty good place. Uh, so yeah, things obviously in the valley and a, lot, a few things. I look a bit of a fool. He said. I mean, he's playing Sterling at wing back, and uh, obviously that didn't work out so well. Um, a bit of a, a bit of a mess really from Chelsea. Uh, Man City playing without Erling Haaland uh, looked like they were. Oh, you know, we do Without miss, Erling we, we do miss the, the big man. Uh, Alvarez, who who had come in, didn't really have much uh, impact in the game. I mean, it obviously needs a bit of adjustment. Uh, it was luckily uh, their their super scorer, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, who uh, who won the game with a free kick. And I don't know if Diego Torres was watching the last minute on, but mm-hmm. um, Kevin De Bruyne burst from one end of the pitch to the other before playing in Gundogan for what should have been a tap-in and ended up not being a goal. It would have been a tap-in for some other Man City players who weren't involved in the game. But that's uh, not everybody can do that. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was obviously an important win just to keep the pressure on Arsenal. So the other big game was obviously the one at Anfield on Saturday night. Oh, Jesse Marsh. Jesse. I love watching Jesse Marsh. Do you? Oh, he's he's. Did you see the celebration when the uh, winning yeah. goal goes in? It's yeah. like what was this, that? Uh, was it was I it air guitar? I don't think it's air. It's it's. This is a very hard thing to do on, uh, you know, in audio. Everyone's form. seen it on. It's, everyone has seen. It. Everyone has it's seen. It's the shaking of the, each of the, each of the hands. You know, the kind of. The, I'm doing it here, Ken. I'm doing it for people. And they can't see it. So I'm sort of shaking my right hand, my, and my left hand in a sort of, just shake, just move your body whatever way feels natural. But then at the end, what you got to do is you got to do a big fist up in the air. That's the kind of, yeah. yeah fist yeah. clenched, teeth clenched, jaw clenched, everything clenched. Well, it was a huge moment because, I mean, the, the, it's, I don't know if the goal, the, the winning goal uh, by Somerville saved his job, but I think the, the results... You know, I mean, a one-all draw at Anfield would have been regarded, I think, by Leeds as a pretty good result. By by Jurgen Klopp as a good result, um, as he said after the game. Um, but to win at Anfield um, is is huge, and 
okay, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. We saw what happened to Nottingham Forest in the, their next game after beating Liverpool. And as, as um, Marsh said, you know, we have to use this to launch ourselves. Um, but, you know, I think he was going to get sacked after the game if they'd lost. And now he's not going to get sacked at least until they lose the next game. <laughs> so, you know, that's... No, a win at Anfield has to buy you two games, shorty. You, think, you think so, right? It definitely, it puts him back in the game because he was on the way out, right? I'm pretty sure that Jesse Marsh was on the way out uh, at Leeds, win that game suddenly, and it changes things. You saw, why do you, you, think, why you so? Why do you seem so certain that he was on his way out? That was the that was the talk out of the game. This this is it. It's it's right. lose this, and they're gonna. Cut the way the, cut he was talking, losses. I felt even after last game was, you know, when Jesse Marsh can talk, you know, he's mm. he's articulate, he can talk a good game. Yeah. But even he was struggling. How can you just keep talking when your team just can't buy a win? You know. Yeah. And I just sort of felt like he looked quite defeated and deflated by his standards but he, he got his mojo back yeah yeah I mean Trent Alexander-Arnold doing an interview after the game um, it's just it's something funny about the way he talks here clearly as a team something is not going right it's not going as well as we wanted to go that's something for everyone to think about for everyone to address and make sure we put it right especially next week against Spurs top four rivals we kind of need to go there and get some points if we've got any chance of reaching our aims and aspirations for the season. Indeed, Trent. Uh, <laughs> just right, the rally, the rally, the rally co- comical understatement of this uh, uh, of this little speech. I thought this was a, a really worrying game for Liverpool um, because unlike the Nottingham Forest game, the Nottingham Forest game was a game I've seen them lose before, uh, which, was, which was a sort of... Uh, Forests are defending with a lot of bodies. You know, it's difficult to get through them. They're having a couple of chances on the counter-attack. Uh, you know, but but the main problem is, if, like, didn't they had 75% possession or something like that. The main problem is an inability to translate, you know, domination of the ball and territory into into clear-cut chances and goals, you know, and if you mm. didn't, and, and, then, and then you lose the game. This game... This Leeds game was totally different. This game was was an end to end broken game. You know, Ten Hag described the United West Ham game as like a tennis match. You know, because I'm and, and mind sort of looking from one end to the other really quick. Um, it was one of those types of games. Uh, frequent turnovers. You know, the defense is caught out of position. Loads of space. This is exactly the sort of game Liverpool are supposed to revel in. This is the kind of game that they've been throughout, you know, most of Jurgen Klopp's time set up to win. And they didn't, you know, you, you kind of, there's no, it's not like that, that forest game where it's like, oh, where's the chance going to come from? You're passing it around, can't find a gap, you know, it's not quite happening. This was like this chance of, there, there are plenty of chances. Well, they didn't actually create that many chances, but they had space, they had, they had opportunities over and over and over again, and they couldn't do it. I mean, Darwin Nunez obviously had chances to win the game. You know, players miss chances. Like, did you see Kylian Mbappe's miss from Neymar's um, assist of the century uh, over the weekend? No. Neymar pulled out a, a, a dribble past several players, which culminated in a in a spinning, like a roulette backheel through ball into the pass of Mbappe, who's in on the left side of the penalty area in in his classic goal-scoring position. And all he needs to do is like sweep it into the corner, as you've seen him do a hundred times, and he kicks it straight at the goalkeeper. And it's actually unbelievable that he would miss that. After this, after the setup, it was, it was, it was astonishing. Uh, but, you know, 
this happens even to the best players, of which Kylian Mbappe is probably currently the best. However, Darwin Nunez is no Kylian Mbappe, right? Who is an all-round exceptional player who does every aspect of the game really well. A player like Nunez, who doesn't get involved constructively in the build-up and frequently is giving the ball away, he has to score. Right, he has to score the chances because otherwise, what's he giving the team? You know, and there was two great chances. One in the first half where he, where he, the obvious thing was to kind of lob the goalkeeper who was miles off his line. Didn't do it because he wasn't confident enough to try it on his left foot. Uh, and then one in the second half, which was actually more like the the miss Mbappe had, where he had, where he's played in by Salah. Uh, you know, it's a good goal scoring chance. You could go around the goalkeeper as well, but that would involve using your left foot. Uh, and he missed both of them. And okay, that's. That's disappointing because you know you, you've missed the chances you've created, and now you're going to concede. Oh, you're going to concede one as well. I mean, compare Nunez, for instance, to uh, I know we 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 were talking about his uh, his actually decent goals record, but you know to to compare to Gabriel Jesus and what he's doing at Arsenal and on all he's giving them, even though he hasn't scored for seven matches or whatever, he's still helping other players to score, and that's what Nunez doesn't. Re- I don't really see Nunez doing that. Uh, which is why his misses uh, are significant when they happen, because you know that's that's what you're in the team to do. So, uh, so so this obviously now is is a, is a major problem for Liverpool. You know, the, I thought I thought defensively I'd be as worried as well. To be oh no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, in, in, I mean, the defence. You know, it was Van Dijk's first defeat at, at Anfield or whatever in the league, and you know, and you you see kind of how. I mean, Gomez, of course, made a mistake. Uh, made a mistake, but Allison's Allison fell at the same, uh, slipped at the same time. Van Dijk wasn't wasn't watching because he kind of assumed that the ball was just going to go to um, Van Dijk, and that's where the Leeds' first goal came from. Then the the one Klopp was really angry about was the second goal where they had loads of players around the ball, nobody able to challenge. But what's happened is is um, uh, I've seen a few kind of um, pieces or, or quite a lot of commentary about like this is you know once again it's the seven year itch. Right, and it's the uh, comparison of, uh, well, Klopp's Dortmund ran out of steam after seven years, and now the same thing is happening again. And I think this is one of those situations where, because something a bit like this happened before, people kind of act as though it's the same thing happening again. You know, one of the frequently told stories about uh, Klopp's time at Liverpool is how, I think it was Ian Graham, their um, director of research, went to Klopp at some point and said, oh, you know, it sort of, sort of showed him... Uh, talked to him about his last season at Dortmund and was saying, oh, you know, you were really unlucky in this game and really unlucky in that game. And Klopp was like, oh my God, you watched these games? And he's like, no, no, I didn't watch them, but I've been looking at the stats. And I know that that was kind of a weird, what happened to Dortmund was weird. It was just one of those weird runs of losing yeah. and and so on and so forth. <clears throat> I mean, and so, so there's that, you know, I don't think you can say that about what Liverpool have, have been doing. You know, if you look at their games... Um, that game last uh, against Leeds was was an even game. You know the XG was was more or less even. They lost the XG against Forest. They lost that game. They lost the XG against West Ham, a game which they won. They lost they lost it comprehensively against Arsenal. Obviously, they lost the game by a narrower margin than than that. You know they had the draw against Brighton again. It was a very even game. The draw against Fulham. It's not like they've been hammering teams and getting unlucky results. Uh, it's been bad performances. Even matches or matches where they've where they've had the worst of it and results to match, um, yeah. but but I I feel like the main problem that Dortmund had was was very a very obvious one. It was losing star players every season. 
you know, and they, they had this constant bleed of players. And and the, the player that they lost going into his last season, the the, the seven year, oh, when, when it all kicks in, was Lewandowski, you know, who's been the striker of the century in Germany, like the, the, the decisive player in the Bundesliga for almost his entire career in that league, right? So he went to the main rival team of free transfer. It's, it's impossible to conceive of a more crushing uh, transfer uh, than that. But, you know, Dortmund had already had Götze leaving also to Munich, Kagawa to Man United, Perisic, uh, Nuri Shaheen before them. You know, this was a this this was season after season. That was the pattern. They would they would always lose top players. And you know, and, and Hummels was was to leave to Munich after uh after this as well. You know, it didn't stop. Royce is the only one who's who's kind of stayed there the whole time. Um, Royce, who himself was was signed to replace one of the the other uh, departing players, so that's not that hasn't been the situation at Liverpool. Like they have lost players. For instance, they let Gini Van Alden go because they didn't want to pay him as much as PSG were paying him. Sadio Mane has joined Bayern, and that's that is a big superficial uh, similarity, you know, to to match the Lewandowski thing. Also a star player, but. I still don't feel as though that's as significant an issue as if you look at the squad composition, this is the real difference. So Dortmund, when they um, had this terrible season, uh, 2014-15, when the players were supposedly worn out uh, from, from you know what Klopp had been putting them through, they they had a very still a very, very young squad. So you're only three players over the age of 30 in the squad. One of them was the goalkeeper, Weidenfeller. Um, uh, you know, and, and the other 30 year old, 30 plus guys, um, Sebastian Kale was one. They're not playing every minute. If you look at the players who were actually mostly in the team, you, it's guys like Subotic, Mkhitaryan, Bender, Kagawa, Royce, Hummels, all 25 years old. Immobile, the, failed, the striker they signed to replace Lewandowski, who failed, was 24. Gundian was 23. Right, so these were the these were the core players in the team, and they were all in their mid twenties, like at a really good age. Um, you know, some of them were getting injured, uh, some of them, you know, were seeing a lot of shots hit the posts and this kind of thing. But it wasn't a sort of a fundamental these guys are going to have to be replaced issue. I mean, it's like it'd be great if we could hang on to these guys for a change. I mean, that was kind of the that 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 was sort of a thing about that. Liverpool have nine players who are aged uh, over thirty in the squad. Um, and eight of them have been playing significant minutes. Adrian's the only exception. So eight have played quite a lot of minutes, quite a lot, of, or appeared in a lot of games, or would be key players if they weren't injured. So like Joel Matip. So you're looking at Virgil Van Dijk, Allison, Salah, Thiago, Henderson, Milner, and Firmino, as well as Matip. Fabinho too is 29 and has you know seemed, looks older. He's an old 29, but <laughs> looks it, right. And that's that's a lot of players in that bracket. If you look at that mid 20s. Category, who do you have there? Jota injured, Diaz injured, Simakas, who's kind of uh, you know a, a reserve, and Trent Alexander-Arnold, uh, Gomez, and Naby Keita, wherever he is. You know, Darwin is twenty-three. He's obviously been in and out, and then a couple of sort of nineteen or twenty-year-olds, Carvalho and, and Elliot, who've played quite a lot. So, so it's that middle section of the squad that's become depopulated, and. That, I think, has that's really what's going on here. They can't handle the schedule anymore. So Leeds had had, had a, a week to prepare for the game. Liverpool played in Amsterdam on Wednesday night and come back, and they just can't 
uh, do what they used to do. And they can't. It, they... Did stri- it, it did strike me when you were talking earlier on about the end to end nature of the game and how much space there was that that's a great thing to have for a team. If you've got somebody like Brendan Aronson in there for yeah. Leeds, yeah. Boston, just absolutely amazing. I thought he was brilliant. I think he's, he's a really good player. I, I, just reading here, he ran 13.2 kilometres, which is more than anyone else in the Premier League over the weekend. Yeah. That's actually the kind of player Liverpool don't have anymore. Yeah. And then, you know, now they actually want the game to be slower and more, or more, and more patient. You know, they've kind of lost that old strength they had, whereas the game turned into a fast running game that they were, they were going to come out on top of that. They can't do that anymore. And that's why I say that I think this is a worse situation than Dortmund had, because I don't really see... Like with, with Dortmund, they turned it around in the second half of the season. You know, players, players came back from injury. Um, you know, the ball started going in instead of hitting the post or whatever. Uh, whereas in this situation, I mean, I'm sure they can, they can play better. And obviously, they, they, players coming back from injury is also a, is also a factor. But it's hard to see how they can kind of become the team they used to be. I mean, if you compare it to their rivals, Arsenal only have Shaka over the age of 30, who's who's a regular part of the team. At Man United, you've got Ericsson, uh, Casemiro, they're, they're just, they're both 30. Ronaldo and, and De Gea is obviously the goalkeeper. Ronaldo is, is, in a, is in a slightly separate category, but they're the only sort of players in this category. At Tottenham, it's Perisic and Son. Um, they've got a few players in their late 20s, you know, Matt Doherty, uh, Hugo Lloris, obviously, again, the goalkeeper. City of Walker, Gundogan, Mares, and De Bruyne, who are over 30, who regularly play. Um, Chelsea have seven. Um, Kante, who's who's obviously been injured a lot, would be playing if he wasn't injured. Thiago Silva, Koulibaly, Mendy, Jorginho, Azpilicueta, and Aubameyang. So that's quite a few at Chelsea. They're not having a great season either. And Chelsea at least do have quite a few academy players too. You know what I mean? Whereas Liverpool's academy production hasn't been on that level. Uh, hasn't been at Chelsea's. Uh, I mean, Chelsea have yeah. been populating teams. Uh, the Chelsea Academy players are everywhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that hasn't really been performed for them either. And, you know, how, how are they going to turn this around? Like, the, there's pressure on them now to do something in January. But who are you going to, you know, who are you going to get? Like, the, it, it seems as though the, the, the ability to, to um, get, you know, surprising uh, good signings walked out the door with Michael Edwards as well. Arthur Mello was the, was the solution that the sporting director came up with in summer. A complete disaster. You know, he's out basically for... <laughs> the way Klopp was talking sounds like he might be out for the season. You know, so it's been great having him over as a sort of exchange student. But obviously he's been completely useless on the field. There's been this weird fixation on Jude Bellingham. I mean, it's not a weird fixation. The problem with it is I think it's been a real... It's been a big mistake. They've kind of let it be known that like Bellingham... We're waiting for Bellingham. You know, they've done this before, like, say, for instance, remember... Van, they Van didn't, Dijk. Exactly. Yeah, that was a big one. They didn't sign Van Dyke, and there was pressure to, to, to sign them. But the, the difference with Van Dyke is they were pretty confident. They, they, they were confident that Van Dyke was going to come. And maybe, maybe there, there's some basis for their confidence with Bellingham. But I think this is a bit different because Bellingham is a huge star. Bellingham is uh, is going to be uh, one of the biggest English players for the next 10 years, right? I mean, assuming he, he doesn't get injured. This is a player who is, who everyone can see how brilliant this guy is, right? Their success, Liverpool's success, has come from signing players who weren't being chased by everyone else. Van Dijk is maybe, Van Dijk and Alisson are the exceptions, but both are defensive players. And oftentimes, you know, Real Madrid are not going to, like say, say for instance, they tried to sign Chouameni from Monaco and he chose to go to Real Madrid. Real Madrid are probably not going to compete with you to sign a, a, a 65 million pound goalkeeper, 
You know what I mean? They're, they're like, well, he's a goalkeeper, <laughs> you know, or, or, a, or a central defender. Um, in the case of Bellingham, you know, I think, well, I think it would be a big relief to them if Bellingham ever ended up playing for them. But it just seems as though sort of declaring your intention miles out, we want to buy the most sought after player in, in England. Like, we're not actually going to sign him. We're just going to wait for that to happen down the line. You know, it's like, I don't think that's going to work. You know, I think they might have to come up with a couple of, uh, and it, it looks as though, I mean, can they, are they even in a position where they can afford to spend nearly all their money on Bellingham and then the rest of the team is already in place? No, not with that many players who are uh, who are in that sort of position. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, that's 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 what the point of this section was. On. Yeah. This is not like Dortmund uh, in seven years ago. This is not some Klopp seven-year itch repeating pattern. This is different and worse. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Take your time there. Take your time. Take your time. Relax, relax. Now. Oh, what a pass. What a pass. What a reverse pass. Go! Go! Welcome to heaven, Willen. Welcome to heaven. Give him the ball on his feet. He will do the magic. Welcome to heaven. Oh, he was amazing. He was amazing. Welcome to heaven. Willen, Willen, Willen. Fantastic. Welcome to heaven. David Snade was in Tala last night to be part of the well, part of the celebrations makes it sound as though you're a Shamrock Rover supporter, David, which we know you're not, but uh, emotional scenes nonetheless. It was a, a good night to be there, I'm sure. Yeah, most definitely was not part of the celebrations, but was a, but was a <laughs> you had your you had your you had your hoops. We know, David, it was you're you're a closet Shamrock Rovers yeah. fan. Well, do you know what? I even went one step further with the kind of self inflicted pain by deciding to do a kind of colour piece by talking to Rovers fans, which. Uh, Oh no! Which, 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 in fairness, 
probably not the best thing to want to do when they're going to be lifting elite title for three in a row and then you're hearing someone talk about oh this is my 10th title this is my sixth title this is my this is my uh, fifth title but now like it's I don't know, when, I think once you put your maybe on loyal, some kind of the loyalties you would have had growing up aside and you obviously get cracking with the actual work of it, it was hard not to just take in the emotion of the occasion, to be honest. And then, I'll be honest, obviously did have tears in my eyes when you see the young lad Josh, Josh Bradley go up and mm. bring out the, the trophy with Ronald Finn and Roberto Lopez and then Roberto Lopez and um, Glenn Cronin, Jim, Stephen Bradley's assistant, bringing them down to, bringing them down to the south stand where obviously doing that kind of the the wind up fist uh, thing that is that, that Stephen Bradley has started doing this season and uh, right. yeah so it was uh, that was I don't think anybody could not look at that and have a bit of a lump in their throat to be honest yeah even the way Bradley talked about that afterwards just saying that look he's he's you know it just gives Josh something else to think about for a few days it's just it was really nice yeah and he said that yeah you know we saw that on TV and we kind of spoke to him afterwards as well he said the same thing and just even grabbing um, Roberto Lopez just before he went down the tunnel before he had a big massive hug off Gavin Bazuna as well who was waiting around for every single Rovers player uh, oh, yeah. but, um, and he said the same he just said like y- you feel as if football is a bit insignificant when obviously like Josh is literally battling leukemia and even when Rovers won the league um, last week and we spoke to Stephen Bradley he was explaining how on the Friday before when they beat Pats um, for one, he wasn't sure if he'd even be able to make it because he hadn't had a good day with his treatment. Kind of just mm. puts it in perspective. But then, again, Lopez made a point that goes, but if this is able to bring him a little bit of happiness and the family a little bit of happiness, well, then it is important. And I think something like that's to be remembered. And like, like this, that football is important in, in many ways, you know, especially when like, we was speaking to those people around and, and I was joking about it at the start. But like, literally, you're talking to generations of, of supporters and families and spoke to your man your man one of the fellas off that Irish goggle box uh, who I didn't realise was a Rovers fan and I just spotted him and got chatting to him and he, <laughs> he was even mentioning that even with his, his own family now his own kids are beginning to go to matches and it's brought his own family a bit closer together you know not just obviously well I'm guessing partly because they are having great success and it's it's very enjoyable to go and watch Rovers play like their attendance is on Friday nights have averaged I think around the 6,000 mark, which is phenomenal. And um, but just that, there was that sense, you know, and then even just speaking to a couple of older fans as well. And there's that bit of sadness too, because one of the, which I just thought was very poignant line, he was explaining that, you know, like you really enjoy these moments. This, this fella has been going to watch uh, Rovers since the late 50s, early 60s. And he was talking about he's seen half of Rovers league titles. And he was just saying, but on nights like this, he thinks of all the people who he used to go to matches with who've passed away and you would have shared moments with. And, Stuff like that just kind of reinforces what we're all what going to football is all about. It's obviously about trying to have you want to see your team succeed, but it's also as Brennan would say about touching those closely and having those embraces. And but that's that's what it is all about. It's about those bonds you make over over decades and that, those friendships and and fam and just that family link, you know. Um, and do those Shamrock Rovers fans believe that this is the? Uh that they've never had it so good. This is the best it's ever been to be a Shamrock Rovers supporter. Um, yeah, well, I think it's a mixture because obviously there was that four in a row team of the eighties. So it, it was part of me thinking for just doing the piece on it today was just like getting that sense of well, you speak to some of the young kids and obviously like let's be honest, they're loving it because they think the success isn't isn't going to stop. 
and then you see, <laughs> I thought there was a great moment where um, they were playing, um, oh, I can't remember even, the, I think it might, it might have been free from desire, they were playing it over the PA when the players were on the lap of honour, and this kind of middle-aged Rovers fan kind of came over to the, where the, the music was being played from and was giving out saying, it's too loud, you want to enjoy it, it's too loud. And then like <laughs> everyone else around them was bleeding, losing their minds, you know. Um, but I just thought that was... Th- you know, it definitely was Freed from Desire. If it's football, if it's a football match in 2022, it was almost certainly Freed from Desire. Yeah. What's, what's that song? I'm trying to think now because I'm, I'm brilliant with music. Like if you ask me, as you know, if you ask me any Neil Diamond song, I can name it right off the bat. But like... Well, you can sing well, it, let alone name it. What's that song? You've got to pump it up. Camera, anyway, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. pump up a jam. I can't know how I'm brilliant, man. I'm so bad with music, really. Um, <laughs> I might shout down to my kid sister downstairs. Like, if I said she's like that, what's that, that Shazam app? She's like the human version of that. If you play like, a couple of bars, but um, but save me, and no, but like, but then, yeah, sorry, but to, to back to your question, like, you speak to some of the older, uh, you speak to some of the older fans, they are making the point that obviously because of what the Rovers team did in the in the 80s, they have to go and match the try and to try and match that. But then there is that sense, you look what's happening in the club around Rovers, like they're not going anywhere. Do you know what I mean? Like obviously there could be that they might have to deal with maybe people coming for Stephen Bradley again and he could have went to Lincoln. Like they're beginning to maybe you would think have that plan in place for when he would eventually go. That would be the one thing at the moment that would derail the success. But and you also look at the fact that the age profile of the team, there's definitely a case there where it does have to be freshened up in key areas and they're going to be losing some key players like Andy Lyons, who like at 22, he's him, Neil Farouge, or 22, 23. Last night, Justin Ferris, only 17. He's been linked with a move away. He's got a lot of talent. But then the age profile jumps up then to about 28, 29, and then it's into your 30s. There's not really a core of lads maybe in there other than, say, Jack Bourne, who's had his injury problems and didn't play. And... Um, Dan Cleary who's come in who would be around that 25-26 mark it's kind of it jumps from being very young to maybe that other side of 30 now that's not right enough players but that's just a natural thing you would look at in terms of having to freshen up and rebuild and, and that's going to be the challenge now for Rovers because you look at some, how some other clubs have maybe had a bit of a demise like Cork City with the financial side when they were challenging and win a league title and they go down to the first division and then Dundalk getting taken over by peak six and then Things just gone to absolute pot there, and then now they're rebuilding with um with their their local owners again. You don't get that sense that there's going to be a major implosion with Rovers. It's just that boring old thing of make, making sure the football club and a team ticks over, and that's what the challenge will be to to make sure that they can build on it. How have they actually got to this position, David? I mean, you know, of of total dominance because it's not as though this is this is like just the way it's always been. I mean, they've three in the last three titles in the last three years, in the last three seasons, but it was like three in the previous 35 years nearly um, leading up to that. So, you know, what is it that they've done that no one else has been able to match? Trust the process, Ken. That's the... Well, it does seem, like genuinely, it does just seem as, if you go back, if you go back a decade after Michael O'Neill left and then, they went through managers. They had Trevor Crowley, they had Stephen Kenny, they had Pat Fenn, and they had Brian Laws as a as a kind of caretaker. They were born and they obviously had qualified for the Europa League and had gone. And you were, people were thinking then, right, this is Rovers going to dominate. But they kind of just fell into that trap of short-termism. Results weren't going well. Like They got rid of Stephen Kenny nine months into a, a three-year contract um, when he was trying to basically refresh that Michael O'Neill team. What we were talking about earlier, what, what Stephen Bradley has to do now with one of his own teams. 
and he got rid of him. And it was just a case of my looking at it from being an outsider and just and then obviously starting to cover them, it just looked as if they were beginning to panic. They were getting to a point where they were in a serious position of power after Michael O'Neill. They didn't know how to deal with it. And they just kind of panicked and borne through some cash and borne through managers and borne through players. And then in the summer of 2016, when that was kind of, the, I would, I, you have to look at it as the kind of turning point because they get rid of Pat Fenlon and then they bring in Stephen Bradley as their caretaker that summer just to get them through. I think his first game was a European game. Can't remember exactly who it was against, but even as a caretaker, he'd been around the club at that point. He obviously played for them, but he'd been working with say the youth system. Shane Robinson at that point was leading the was leading the youth system, and he's been in like he's been obviously a former player as well. But he's been kind of ru- running that that youth system over the last number of years, and like it, it's not all down to that. You I know people talk about the youth system and stuff, but it has been Bradley driving what's happening in the first team, and you see that now with the age profile of the team, like. They have that balance between realizing that that academy at the moment is very, very important because obviously that's how Irish football is beginning to change with the underage leagues. But Stephen Bradley, once he took that permanent job as the manager, was working with the board, was working with obviously the people who are making the decisions and was able to basically imprint his vision on the club and make them back him because... Like, there was banners there last night celebrating 20 league titles, three in a row, hailing Stephen Bradley. But a year, less than a year into his reign, there was banners at Talley calling for him to go. Do you know what I mean? So, like, they could have easily have stuck with that whole short-term thing of, do you know what, it's not working, or results weren't coming. But they were able to kind of have that foresight a little bit. And then they delivered. And then they've also had financial backing as well. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Ray Wilson, who obviously would be one of the major shareholders and who's based in Australia would be a big Rovers fan. They have got the, the the support base, obviously, of the 500 club in terms of the, the supporters who have kept that club going through when they were basically homeless and going from ground to ground around Dublin, like Martin Stadium, Talca Park, the RDS, all these places. And obviously Dermot Desmond has come in in recent years and he's pumped in, I think it was around 2 million and that was for the academy. So, and you, t- you tie in with the move to Tallis Stadium and the fact that it's owned by South Dublin County Council and they're, they're the anchor tenants. Like People say, oh, well, you know, it's not their home and all the rest. But they're, they're, they're benefiting because they're putting the, they're able to get these partnerships in place and they're able to operate in, at a level where people want to be involved with them. And it hasn't happened overnight because even Bradley took the job in 2016. It was 29, obviously, the COVID year. When COVID hit when they won the league and I know people say, oh, well, you remember Pat Huben saying, you know, it doesn't really count. But like, <laughs> yeah. but they won't, like, if you think about it, like people can forget. But like they won that league unbeaten. Like if they, if that league had been a full season, like that's it had been a full season, it probably just would have been more embarrassing for Pat Huben than that because like they just would have romped it. Do you know what I mean? Like they were absolutely hockeying teams and destroying teams because that was when Bradley's kind of football was beginning to properly come in and how he was setting them up and all the rest of it. And that's basically how how it's been. It's just been a case of not repeating the same mistakes as they had been before and actually trust in a manager who's proven to be capable of delivering them success. I think all the fans of every other League of Ireland club have been pressing, you know, plus 30 seconds on this podcast all the way along here. <laughs> just, just, have, have they stopped talking about Rovers yet? But I, if they do happen to stumble upon this little segment here, can I ask you, who can possibly challenge them at this point? Is it going to have to be Derry City who are second this season? Because it doesn't look like any of the Dublin clubs based on this season are really up to it at the moment yeah like you would you would look you would imagine that Derry will because obviously the back end they have there now as well and how they've done in Rudy Higgins four season like 
I think if you go back to May of this year, I think it was, I think they were, they were three points ahead. Three, they, were, they were three points ahead in May of Rovers. And in the space of about 10 days, it went that Rovers beat them 1 0 at Talley. And then that gap stretched to seven and eight. And then I think they only picked up like two points from four games after that dirty. And that kind of just derailed their title kind of chances. And that's kind of almost what you would expect of a team who was put together that is really good and impressive, but isn't really a full-on team yet where they'll have those blips. The Grovers don't have that at the moment. They are having it previously. Dundalk or another one who will come 100% because Stephen O'Donnell, and I say this as a Pats fan, and people, this has been said in the pod before, I mean, people know that. But Stephen O'Donnell, the work he did at Pats, the work he did again at, at Dundalk this season, and the backing that Dundalk have there, and like what I was saying about having a, a board who trusts you and understands you and kind of believe in you, like, they're going to give him that time to keep on getting it right. And like O'Donnell has already shown it at Pats after a bit of a struggle coming in through COVID and all, at the end of the season, and but then delivering them the FAI Cup and being able to put a really strong team together. Like he was beginning to get that 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 foundation at uh, Dundalk as well. Like they were challenging for a while, they were above dirty, they were close to hours, and they just drifted, but you would expect that they will they will come again. Now the issue here for all three teams, and this is the same for Rovers, Dirty and and Dundalk, because like they would be the three I'll be looking at for next year where they would they you would Pats have shown after Europe under under um say for me Oh my God, how is it that his name is there? Tim Clancy. <laughs> Under Tim Clancy. Yeah. They can go on a run, but it's sustaining that. But the issue for all those clubs, but mainly Rovers, Dundalk and Derry is like the pool of players in the league, within the league of Ireland to actually add and improve isn't great. Like Rovers have already started. You would expect that there could be signs for them soon. You, Dundalk the same and Derry. It's going to be, you're going to have to get players from outside the league as well. To kind of more so for the other two to bridge that gap. That's what you'd be looking at. But you de- there's definitely that sense that it'll be them three, and that's I don't think anyone can really disagree with that at the moment. You know, um, and it's just interesting as well because it's three young managers too. You know, Rudy Higgins, Stephen O'Donnell, like Stephen Bradley. It kind of echoes what's going on around the league. You see it like just last night. But going to matches, going to Pat's matches, going to games for the country, there is just a bit more of a vibrancy with younger people going to watch the football. And it's fantastic, and that's what I'm already kind of looking for. And you look at it, we haven't even, we know, we probably talk about closer to the time, but the cup final in a couple of weeks, you're going to have, you could have Damien Duff leading an, an Irish team into European action if they were to be a uh, Derry City as well. So there's just, does seem to be a proper vibrancy around the league, you know? Yeah, what about Duffer then? And what he's done with Shelburne to get them into a, into a cup final in his first season in charge? Yeah, just a great story, isn't it? Like people like coming in, like he, in the league was they've probably been exactly what you would expect from from a team in the league where they got players in who were going to work hard and were going to be dogged and he's like I think anybody who's looked at them you just say you know what like he's really got a team together and molded that kind of camaraderie really together and got a group of players like you speak you speak to like I spoke to Sean Boyd and uh, Luke Bourne before their semi-final win over Waterford and it was just very interesting to hear because like you just said they Genuinely, all the players, a lot of the players, they just do so much together away from football as much as that. And, and there's that sense of a family vibe about it. And they actually brings more out of them. They're, they feel as if when they're out on the pitch, they're with their mates. And like they go a bit of a, a bit of the extra yard for each other because like they actually like each other. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, and Duff is, that's what Duff had wanted in the first year. And it's pretty clever management there and smart in terms of getting that. Because that's what you need from a, from a newly promoted team is having that 
bit of a work ethic and then you add in being able to go on that cup run and get the win over Bowes in the, in the quarterfinals and then obviously Waterford who were who were in flying form and I don't know if you saw it but the conditions down in the RSC that night were absolutely horrific it was like it was like a monsoon down there and like the team that Duff had put together were able to come through that and again similar to Bradley it's just a different challenge for him next season it's going to be well and also because there's investment in, in shells as well maybe not quite the level of of say of a Rovers or a Derry or Dundalk but significant enough where even after one season of consolidation little old shells as, as Duff thinks people call them they will be expected now to actually to hit the next level and if they if they can finish this season with the FA Cup and go into Europe it's just going to add to another great part of the story of this season Isn't David cracking stuff thanks so much No bother lot it's good to talk to you I said Karen it's Richard Keyes Prehistoric banter Please it was just banter is not acceptable in a modern world Do you have any regrets? None There are some dark forces at work here The eyes have it The eyes have it Just a quick add-on to that piece, Ken David Snade has been back in touch since we recorded that conversation. Yes. With an important piece of information. Yes, he, he was able to identify the song from his notes uh, that he that he didn't recognise. Do you know what the song was that David Snade did not recognise? Go on. Do you recognise it yet? No, 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 no limits. No, sorry, no I was limits. Mr. Vane. Oh, no limits. No, yeah, no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. There's no limits. This was the song that he didn't recognize. <laughs> he thought his freed was from Desire. But listen, I, I got it wrong there as well. So yeah. Well done also to the Shelburne women's team who, for the second year in a row, won the league in the final day of the season last year. They won their last match three-two to nick the title from Wexford Youths who lost on the final day. This year was more straightforward, at, le- at least as straightforward as a title win on the final day can be. They beat Wexford Youths 4-0 to make any other results irrelevant, so well done to them. And well done also to everyone who ran the Dublin Marathon yesterday. Not sure, Ken, if you remember a number of years ago, back in my early marathon running days, the subject of whether or not I could run a faster marathon than David Gillick came up on air. It's a kind of weird thing you might remember. David Gillick. I mean, I would say he would probably run a faster marathon than well, you. Well, this is what you said at the time, Ken. In fact, Murph scoffed at the notion that I could beat an Olympian, a European champion, as I patiently explained. He is a racehorse, though, of course. And you're, you're a cart horse. This, the cart horse. This is exactly the cart horse. My point was the cart horse... Look, there are a lot of 400 metres within the 26.2 miles. I yeah. would never doubt that David Gillick would beat me over 400 metres. That was never up for discussion. Yeah. But 800 metres, I'd say he'd still have the edge. It was just, at what distance could you possibly think I could beat David Gillick? I felt marathon distance. That's where I would take him. Well, David Gillick ran his first ever marathon yesterday, Ken. Uh-huh. And he absolutely obliterated my best ever time. So what did he do? <laughs> Gillick's PB, three hours, 16 minutes. 53 seconds. That's I mean, that's... McDevitt's PB, 3 hours, 42.06. So on this occasion, 13 year, years later, I'm prepared to admit yourself and Murph were correct. That, that is, uh, that's pretty good. But I feel mm. that I have to, uh, I feel that I have to mention the great uh, Kieran Cassidy. Go on. Given that you're, um, given, that, given that David Gillick, a, you know, a former Olympic athlete is running, what did you say, 3, 316? 3, 3.16.53, yeah. What, well, what did our pal Cass do then? Well, uh, Kieran Cassidy, who, who obviously um, was uh, producing the Where's George Gibney podcast with Mark, um, ran a phenomenal 3.13. Oh, destroying David Gillick. 3.13. He destroys, he destroys David Gillick. Kieran Cassidy's nearly as old as myself. 
He, may, he may he may even be older. But he's. I wonder uh, was I wonder was Mark behind the scenes doing the reverse? Okay, deep breaths now. Deep breaths, as in the Where Is George Gibney series. Yeah, yeah. Now it's uh, well. He did end up in the medical tent, Cass, but uh, thankfully all's well that ends well. Good. And Good. Uh, <laughs> it was a phenomenal time, and uh, and a great story to tell everybody he meets for the rest of his life. I feel bad. I missed. I missed Cass. I was there watching it, and I did see Gillick go past, but I I didn't see Cass go past. Well, he's too fast. If there was a red blur at any point to just pass for that was probably that was probably him. So <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening. The Second Captain's Podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. To hear every episode ad-free, just become a World Service member. Simple as that. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports important. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.